Well, good morning, everybody. Okay, I'll try that again. Good morning, everybody. All right. Well, my name is Prentice, for those of you that I have not yet met. Uh, but I get the privilege to be the lead pastor at Bethany West Seattle. And so it is such a privilege to be here uh, with you this morning as we uh, launch this new series on Job called Embracing Mystery. And now I get the privilege to, to set it up, give you a little bit of an overview. Uh, but my recommendation and my encouragement is for you to uh, go into the book yourself and, and wrestle with it and navigate with it and write down questions and, and, and comments and, and whatever observations that you might have. Because one thing that we do know about the book of Job is that it's really, really complex. Not only the theology behind it, uh, but even the, the words, especially in the Hebrew and, and all the s- syntax and all that, it's just confusing uh, oftentimes. So the encouragement is show up, listen, learn, and also uh, read, pray through uh, on your own time as well. But, but regardless of how complex the book of Job is, we really believe that it's worth digging into. Because it has not, not, not the whole thing and not primarily, uh, but it does have a lot to do uh, with what happens when we experience suffering and pain and confusion and uncertainty. And my uh, bet would be that for as many people that are here, that you're walking in, many of you are walking in, caring some sort of suffering or pain or tragedy or heartache. And I really believe that the book of Job, that this whole series for the next eight weeks will have something to offer you. So again, welcome. We're so glad that you were here. For those of you watching online, we're so glad that you are here. So let me pray and we will get started. God, thank you that we get to hear from you and you alone. God, even during seasons of pain and suffering and heartache and tragedy, we know that you are with us. That's what Advent and Christmas was all about. Emmanuel, God with us. And so, God, may we believe that today. May we know that you are with us through the good times and through the lowest times. And we'll be thankful for it. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, since there's so many of you that I don't know, uh, I want to start off uh, sharing a, a personal story about myself. Uh, and it's a story of how I met my now wife. Uh, it was a few years ago when, you know, when people ask me, how did you and your wife meet? I always tell them uh, we met through a, a friend, a mutual friend. Uh, but know this, that when I say that a few years ago, my wife and I met through a mutual friend, I really mean in the most literal sense, we just met through this friend. This friend just introduced us. There was no intention of setting us up. There's nothing significant about it. It was brief. I just say, I happen to be at the right place at the right time. But after that moment, I realized that that quick brief encounter was probably a bit forgettable for my wife. Uh, but for me, it was unforgettable. And I remember walking away that day thinking that one day, 
Just one day, I'm going to build up enough courage uh, and strength to, to somehow reach out to her. And after a few weeks, guess what I did? I did just that. And like a good millennial, and I'm on the edge of that, uh, the way I did that was through social media, right? Like, I know that many of us have done that before. And so uh, we became friends on a social media platform. And I had a plan. And my plan was this. Trust me, the story gets worse. Uh, the plan was this, that anytime she posted something, then I would reply to that, telling her how much I loved the very thing she posted about to make sure that we, she knew that we had things in common. And so I remember the very first post that I did that. It, it was her skiing with her lovely grandmother at Crystal Mountain. I think I've been to Crystal Mountain maybe once, but I responded, I love Crystal Mountain. You too? No way. And, and then a few weeks later, she posted uh, a picture of her, this is pre-pandemic, of her at a concert uh, with uh, Matt Carney. And after Googling who he was, I said, I love Matt Carney. Uh, although to this day, I probably couldn't give you a single song that he sings. And then a few weeks later, she posted a picture of a certain food item. And of course, I replied, and, and I really meant it this time. I love that food that you posted. And her response was, really? It was disgusting. But by the miracle of God... Things panned out, and here we are a few years later, married. And now the reason why I share with you this story is to confess to you uh, this, that I pretended to be somebody I wasn't in order to woo her. I showed, her in, I showed interest in the things she was interested in, not simply because I wanted this bond or, or to share this common interest together, uh, but because I was interested not in the things, but in her, and I wanted her to be interested in me back in return. And so essentially, I wanted something back, and so I pretended to be somebody I wasn't. Now, can you recall a time doing something good? Well, only because you knew that you'd get something back in return. Have you ever had ulterior motives to your goodness? And if we're all being honest with ourselves, I bet the answer is yes. Maybe you posted a picture of yourself doing something charitable only to rack up the likes or to uh, get more followers or friends on, on social media. Maybe you pretended to be somebody's friend because you knew that friendship would be beneficial to you one way or another. Maybe you helped somebody by doing them a favor, knowing that now you can add them on your favor list for the future. Or to put it harshly, maybe you just use somebody for your own gain. And now I ask this question, whether or not you've done something with ulterior motives, because I truly believe as we, for the next eight weeks, we unpack the story of Job. I believe that it will help us understand the book of Job just a little bit better. And as the person who has the privilege of getting to set up the whole series what I believe is important to do is to frame, or I would say reframe the story 
of Job. Now, here's what I mean by that. If you've ever been around the church, if you've been around the church for a while, you, you probably have an idea of what the story of Job is all about. There's a man named Job who loves God. One day, Satan uh, decided to test Job's loyalty, his, his fidelity to God by killing all of his children, taking away all his livestock, destroying his land, and even bringing Job himself some physical pain. But during this time of suffering, Job had faith in God. So God returned the favor uh, by giving back everything twofold, and he lived happily ever after. But I'll submit to you that this conventional or this traditional or this common way of understanding Job can be dangerous, or at least understanding Job as it has to do with just only primarily suffering can be dangerous. And the reason why that's dangerous, because it gives us false and dangerous deception into believing that we can somehow deduce answers to why suffering exists, not only in our personal lives, but in the world that we live in. Understanding Job primarily through the lens of just suffering gives us the false impression that now we can find answers to all of life's problem of suffering. Again, not just for myself, but for the whole world. But now I, I understand why we gravitate towards this, this way, this style of reading of Job. I do it. I've done it for many, many years. It ultimately becomes a lifeline when we are suffering, because when, were we, when we are suffering, what we want most are answers. I mean, we've all felt that anytime we're going through suffering or pain or uncertainties in life, for whatever reason, we are always searching for answers. And if that's the case, then of course we would read Job in that way because it becomes a lifeline. And most of us here know firsthand what it feels like to suffer, to be in anguish, to be in despair. Maybe you have lost a loved one. Maybe you're navigating a health crisis. Maybe you're going through a divorce or a heart-wrenching breakup or rejection. Maybe you are an ex you're experiencing a great divide with close friends and family due to these politically charged times. Or maybe you're just feeling lonely, anxious, or just depressed with the state of this world. And for whatever reason, again, and really the only thing that oftentimes gives us a resemblance of closure or resolution in times of suffering is just to ask the question, why? Because we as humans, myself included, particularly here in the West, we do not do well with uncertainty. We need to know the why, especially when it comes to suffering, right? And oftentimes we need to know the why, because when we know the why, then we can figure out the how to get ourselves out of this mess. Because we think we can fix the problem of our suffering. 
And what this ultimately becomes about is our unrelenting need for control. You see, in our suffering, we often tend to want to know the end of the story. Because again, that gives us a sense of control. If we know the why, then we know how to do X in order to figure out the solution. And that's control because when we're experiencing suffering and chaos, that feels like we're losing control. And so oftentimes when we have moments or seasons of suffering and heartache and pain, oftentimes it's because we don't know how it'll all unfold. We don't know the end of the story. And so what we often do is we make up our own end of the story. And oftentimes the end of the story that we make up is a bad ending of the story. But guess what? A bad ending of the story is still better than not knowing the ending of the story at all. Psychologists even have, they have a word for this and it's called catastrophizing. We catastrophize because it gives us our control back during seasons of suffering. And we've all done this, even in the most trivial sense. For example, why didn't that person say hi back to me? It's because he hates me. Why, didn't that pers- why did that person leave me? because I'm unlovable and unworthy. Why didn't I get that job or that promotion? Well, because I'm incompetent. In an interview with an author psychologist by the name of Brene Brown, she says this, storytelling or, or inserting our own narrative, storytelling helps us all impose order on chaos, including emotional chaos. When we're in pain, we create a narrative to help us make sense of it. The story doesn't have to be based on any real information. One dismissive glance from a coworker can instantly turn into, I knew she didn't like me. And she continues on by saying, when I'm in doubt, the I'm not enough explanation is often the first thing I grab. It's like the comfy pair of jeans. It's not flattering, but it's familiar. Now, I want to offer you perhaps a very different, maybe not very, but a different way of looking at Job where, where it doesn't include this need for the answers of why things are happening. It doesn't include this aspect of needing and wanting control. I humbly submit to you that the book of Job isn't a book primarily about why suffering exists. And I want us to just have that foundation as we continue on unpacking the rest of of Job. I submit to you that Job isn't really about suffering primarily. Yes, the topic of suffering is in the book of Job, along with topics of justice, marriage, friendships, doubts. But with a careful reading of Job, you'd even notice that God doesn't even answer to Job why he even suffered. The answers just simply are not there. Instead, I would love for us to take a look or at least give this a chance. The book of Job is not about why we suffer, but about who God is when we suffer. The book about Job primarily is not about why we suffer, but about who is God when we suffer And it's the answer to the latter that we need most 
in order for us to feel sustained. My Old Testament professor, John, Dr. John Goldengay from Fuller Seminary, he says this about Job. Job isn't a book to be read for encouragement when you are terribly suffering and not a book to give to somebody when they are terribly suffering. It would be too late by then. It's meant to be read when things are going okay in order that your thinking and attitude would be shaped. So when, not if, terrible things happen, you know what this book can offer you. And so we go back to the question in times of suffering and pain. And you know firsthand, whether from from the past or whether you're bringing it with us this morning, you know what it feels like to be in a season of suffering. And the question goes to you, it goes to me, goes to the church. In those moments of suffering, how do you, how do I view God? During this pandemic, during a loss of a loved one, during a loss of a child, during a loss of finances, during the darkest, the most painful days of your life. And again, I bet some of you walking through these doors this morning are barely holding on. In those moments, who is God to you? You see, Job too was faced with this question starting from the very beginning of chapter one. And this chapter, along with chapter two, becomes the foundation of the rest of Job. And we want to take a look at that just for a moment. Now, we don't know who the author is of Job, but we do know that in the opening verses of verse one through five, it was their way of sharing two important truths about Job. Uh, Truth number one is this, that Job was a very godly man. It says, there was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright and feared God and turned away from evil. Job was a godly man. He, He prayed all the right prayers, went to church every Sunday, prayed before meals, prayed for before going to bed, prayed for his kids. He worshiped, he sang songs, he read the Bible. Job was a holy and righteous man. The Bible says that he was blameless and upright and feared God. Come on. Job was a godly man, truth number one. Truth number two that the author is trying to share with us in in these opening verses is that Job was a wealthy man. In the ancient Near East, wealth was measured by family, land, and livestock. And it says that there was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep. He had 3,000 camels. He had 500 yoke of oxen. He had 500 donkeys. He had many servants. And he was considered the greatest person of the East. One commentator referred to him as the John D. Rockefeller of the East. And after the introduction of Job, of setting up these two truths, that first of all, Job was a righteous man, blameless, feared God, uh, and, and godly. And number two, that Job had everything when it came to monetary resources. He was wealthy. He had it all, along with that was status and fame and influence. And then it says this, one day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also among them. 
The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered to the Lord, from going to and fro from the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. And even God testifies that Job, it says, uh, he's, he's blameless and upright and he fears me, God, and turns away from evil. And then, now I want to just make a, a, just some brief notes about just this section, because at a quick glance, it's kind of strange, isn't it? Again, I go back to Job is a strange book. It's filled with a lot of mystery and wonder and a lot of unique languages. And there's a scene that we read where Satan and God are having a conversation about who Job is. And so just some brief preliminary observation. Uh, number one, a vast, I don't want to say all, but a vast amount of biblical scholars view Job as wisdom literature, uh, as poetry. It's not necessarily meant to be read as a, a literal historical event. It's not wrong if you do just saying that there is a large amount of biblical scholars, including Pastor Tim Keller, John Walton, Pete Enns. And I'm just naming these names. You may not know them, but this is from the spectrum from the most conservative to, to the most progressive. Many of them believe that this is a literary construct. And that's not to be threatening. That's actually beautiful. But at the end of the day, if that upsets you, you're welcome to write me an email and just let me have it. My email is Eric Henderson at BethanyChurch.com. But I just wanted you to give this a chance. In the opening chapters, here's what's happening. The author is bringing the reader. Again, we don't know who the author is, but, but the author is bringing the reader, whoever the readers are, uh, into two different scenes. And I don't know if you've ever done this uh, where you watch an old sitcom like I remember watching an episode, it was a rerun episode recently of the show called Family Matters. Am I dating myself? Anyone know the show Family Matters? Uh, okay, five of you. Okay, I, okay. Uh, but there's this scene where this angel comes to uh, Laura, Laura Winslow, who is part of you know the family. And, and this angel like transports her through the TV to a different stage of life to see what it was like or to see what it would be like. And I imagine something like that is happening again in this epic poem. What's happening is that this writer is saying there's two different scenes. There's a scene in, in this heavenly council in heaven. And then there are scenes on earth on what actually happens. And they go back and forth, the author does. And so here what we see is that Satan is talking with God in the heavenly courts, in the divine courts, in heaven. And what we have to understand is, first of all, in the original Hebrew, Satan is this word, ha-satan. And the word ha-satan literally breaks up into two words. Ha is a definite article, meaning the word the. Uh, it's not a name. It's a title. And the word Satan, where we get Satan from, is this word accuser or adversary or challenger. And so 
Satan literally means Hasatan, which literally means the accuser or the challenger. And so what is strange about this scene in the heavenly courts is that Satan isn't just this person with, with a pitchfork and devils and a tail. He, Satan's actually, the Satan, the, the accuser, is actually part of God's divine counsel in heaven. And, and it's almost like, the accuser is raising his hand and he's saying, God, I want you to take a look at Job. I, I think there's something kind of kind of fishy about him, God. It's almost as if the Satan uh, is doing God a favor as being part of, of his heavenly courts, raising a hand and saying, God, I, I want you to take a double take on, on Job there because it, I, I feel like you may be deceived. It looks like that Job loves you unconditionally. God, it seems like God, God, it seems like Job is upright and blameless. And it seems like Job fears you and runs away from evil. But wait a minute, God says the challenger and, and we can read on the Satan Hasatan asks a very central question that connects or perhaps connects uh, the two truths about Job. Remember, Job was a godly man. Job was a wealthy man. And so the Satan says this in verse nine, then Hasatan, Satan, answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. And then the Satan says, but stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Satan is asking and ultimately challenging God. Does Job love you really with no strings attached? The Satan is, is, is essentially saying to God, Job loves you, God, because he gets something out of it. Job is worshiping you because there's perks. Look at his life. He's posh. He has all these livestock. He has a huge family. He has all this land. He has all this influence. Of course, he's going to love you and worship you and pursue you because he benefits from it. There's a theologian named Gustavo Gutierrez. He refers to this as the wager. And the wager is something that is really important in understanding the book of Job. And the wager is this, Satan, the accuser raises his hand and says that, God, I bet you if you took away everything that Job had, then he will curse you. Well, God already declared that Job was blameless and upright and feared God and ran away from evil. And so metaphorically think, speaking, God kind of took on that wager because of God's faith in Job. And as we read on, we do see that Satan takes away from the life of Job. Satan takes away his children, his land, his livestock, and it even brings physical pain upon Job himself. 
And guess what? At the end of all this, Job still doesn't get an answer to why the suffering happened. Even his friends, which we'll look at throughout the weeks, wanted to insert their opinion on why. They say, Job, the reason why you are suffering is because you must have sinned. Remember, uh, whether it's today or thousands of years ago, the human condition is the same. In times of suffering and tragedy and uncertainty, we're always looking for the why. And we're looking for the why, because when we understand the why, we can figure out the what, because when we can figure out the what, we can figure out what to do next to fix the situation. And so even as friends, they say, well, I know why. It's because you sinned. And now I know what you need to do. Stop sinning. Stop disobeying God. You must have done something. And Job pleads back and says, no, I did not do anything. Yes, Job is confused. Yes, Job is saddened. Yes, Job is devastated, to say the least. But yet here is Job's response to after he lost everything. Can you imagine? Verse 20 says this, and Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22 says, And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrongdoing. When it says that Job tore his clothes and shaved his head and fell on the floor and worshiped, that's symbolism towards Job being helpless and humbled and vulnerable. And what he acknowledges is that everything from the beginning was a gift. He didn't earn it. He didn't do anything right. Yet he didn't do anything wrong. Everything was a gift. Nothing belonged to him in the first place. Now Job leaves us having to ask ourselves and myself, The same question. In times of suffering, how do you view God? Do you view view God like a genie that will answer all your questions, that'll solve all your problems, that'll relieve all your suffering, that'll take care of, of every wrongdoing that's been done to you? Or do you see God in the way that Job sees God. And the reminder in the story throughout Job is a reminder that sometimes we have to be okay without knowing what the end of the story is. And we have to be okay without knowing why the story is even the story at all. And the invitation is this, When we trust God, we don't have to have all the answers. Now, when I was writing this sermon, I have to be honest with you. I was trying to think of a conclusion or or an application, and I really did not want this to be it. 
Uh, there's got to be something more. This, this, oh, just trust God. It sounds so simple and it sounds like a platitude and it sounds like almost like a cop-out. But I have to remind myself that's, uh, that discomfort is coming from this Western idea of always wanting answers. The why, the why, even in, in the sermon, I'm looking for that. When the answer is there is no answer sometimes, or we don't know the answer sometimes. And that's okay. We see this similarly in the life of Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was arrested and crucified on the cross on our behalf. He prays to God, he says this in Luke, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, we know that God did not remove that cup from Jesus. Jesus did die on the cross, again, on our behalf, did rise from the dead after three days on our behalf. And God accomplished God's own purpose through God's own wisdom, a purpose, a wisdom, oftentimes that we cannot fathom. You see, we want, we want all the answers. Sometimes we'll never get it. This writer, this journalist, uh, Elizabeth Gil- Gilbert says this, you are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control. But you never had control in the first place. All you had was anxiety. And so I end with this. When it comes to our suffering and pain and tragedy, and again, maybe you're bringing some of those stuff with you now. Maybe you've experienced it. We know because of life, it won't be the last time. Remember this. Number one, we won't have all the answers. We just won't. In other words, we won't have control. And yet, number two, in the midst of all of that, we can trust God. So surrender. Surrender your need to know why. Surrender your need to have all the answers. Surrender your desire to have the fix to the problem and allow God to be God and us to be us. And I would say this, it is an absolute superpower to be able to genuinely say, I don't need an explanation. I don't need an explanation because God's love is more than enough. So trust God, trust in God's wisdom. Like we trust our cars when we go for a drive. If you're anything like me, I have no idea how it actually works. But I do know that once I get into my car, it takes me from point A to point B. Point B to point A is always questionable, but 
it does take me from point A to point B. Trust in God's wisdom like we trust in the structure of our home. I have no idea how it's standing, but I know it gives me shelter. Trust in God like we trust that the sun will set and the sun will rise. We don't always know how all of that works, but we just know that it does. So throughout this series, may you find peace. May you find comfort. Not because Job offers you the answers to our suffering, but it gives us hope knowing that God is in control and we can trust God and that changes everything. This moment, I'm going to invite the worship team back up and I want us to enter into an exercise. Will you just do me a favor? Will you just close your eyes for me? And, and will you just put out your hands as a posture of surrender? I, if, this, if you're new to the church world, uh, don't be spooked. This is just what we do to say, you know what? God is in control. And, and so will you just close your eyes and just put your hands out as a posture of control? And would you just confess? In other words, would you just name the places where you are feeling like you are suffering? The, the, the places where you feel like you are experiencing uncertainty and heartache and pain, will you just name that and just give that to God right now? And we give that to God trusting that God is moving, that God is doing, that we don't know how, we don't know how it all works. We don't know when, but, but because we know that God is in control and we can trust God, we can surrender. Will you surrender right now? God, I pray for everybody here, not just here, but those that are watching online, that as they lift up the spaces of their suffering, of their pain, of their tragedy, that you are listening and not just listening, but you are moving. And we know that, we trust that, we believe that. And because of that, we have hope in all circumstances. And that brings us peace. We don't know how things will unfold. In this case, we don't need to know the end of the story. We just want you to be God. And thank you for being God in our lives. May we trust you with everything not because you give us all the answers, because we know that you are holy, you are good, you are powerful, and you are for us, and Emmanuel, you are with us. And we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's continue in worship.